Hi, and welcome to another special episode of What I'm Obsessed With Now, with your friendly host and obsessive, Byron. For our last in this UFO interview series, we will hear from Cheryl Gottschall. Cheryl is the president of UFO Research Queensland. I really enjoyed this conversation. Cheryl is well thought out and compassionate. She is also incredibly generous with her time and knowledge. I enjoyed this conversation and hope to have another with Cheryl, as she has a breadth of knowledge across many fields. Take a seat and relax as we travel into the world of UFOs one last time this week. Sure. Um, well, I guess my interest started as a child, really. Not that I knew it was the UFO subject at that stage, but I remember as a child uh, being, you know, looking at the sky, the night sky, and wondering if there were other people out there on a planet somewhere or various mm. planets, looking back at me wondering the same thing. You know, is there other life out there in the universe? That wasn't nurtured because it wasn't in my family's thinking at the time. Um, but when I got into my um, 20s and I got married, my uh, husband and I, uh, we sort of went on a search for God. And in doing so, we began a home Bible study group um, uh, home, you know, with uh, a particular organization. Um, and um, <clears throat> every week for three years, they would come into our house and we would sit and we would go through the Bible, which was interesting to start with. Um, but after a while, the um, descriptions of angelic visitations really started to, you know, make me think, I think there's more to this than and angels. You know, I don't think it's angels that are visiting people. It makes more sense that it's extraterrestrials. I can't tell you why I had that thought. I just did. So um, from there, we. My, it turned out, as it was anyway, that my father-in-law had been involved with uh, our organisation, UFO Research Queensland, many years previously. And um, he had been to the Brisbane City Hall when a well, the well-known contactee of the 60s era, 50s and 60s, George Adamski, came to Brisbane and he spoke at the Brisbane City Hall and uh, it was packed out. I think that they said there was something like, you know, I don't know, 2,000 people because they filled up inside and they were streaming outside as well and they'd hooked up speakers outside so People outside could hear what he was saying too. And, um, of course, he got a really bad um, – um, he had a bad experience and yeah. people were throwing things at him and university students really? were running around with paper plates on sticks painted green and all this sort of silly nonsense, you know. But that was what was happening in the 60s. Anyway, so because of my father-in-law's interest, um, that sort of really um, was a catalyst for my own – uh, dormant interests, I guess you could say, to come forward because, uh, and they were Italian immigrants, so every week we'd go over there and have dinner and we'd have these huge philosophical discussions around the family dinner table about life in the universe and, um, you know, extraterrestrials and who speaks for humanity and, um, you know, what would happen if extraterrestrials came here and what did, would an advanced society look like? Would we even recognise them? All those sort of deeper questions, which... Even today, we don't even really discuss in the UFO field. Um, n not often, anyway. So 
Um, and, and it just grew from there. And then so we got in touch with uh, UFO Research Queensland, which at the time was called the Queensland Flying Saucer Research Bureau. And um, uh, and we went along to the first meeting, which happened to be the AGM, got, in, got onto the committee, and I've, that was 32 years ago. Wow. Been, been there ever since. I, I think the two things really stand out from that. First of all is the reaction that people had to uh, coming and speaking and saying, you know, I've, I've experienced something. Why do you think that gets such a reaction? Have you, have you experienced it um, throughout your career? Yeah, in the early days, yes. Um, yeah. It was a big pill to swallow for yep. people to think that we are not alone in the universe. And we're talking, like I got involved with this group in 1988, but uh, and ridicule was still fairly high in the 80s. It wasn't until around 2000 that it began to drop. And my perspective is it began to drop because scientists start, went, changed their point of view from we are alone in the universe, we have always been alone in the universe, um, mm-hmm. to, oh, well, perhaps there's some life out there somewhere, way out there, you know, and changed slowly over time to, well, it's highly likely that there's going to be other yeah. life in the yeah. universe. And, and I found that the public were swayed by that mm-hmm. um, because to much to my surprise um, and I went along to a few meetings sort of scientifically oriented meetings in relation to that uh, which had a huge amount of, of uh, Australian public attending um, with people speaking about extraterrestrial life from a scientific point of view and I think that you know there's a, a group of Australians that demographic that wants to be appear to be or is interested but they want to also be scientifically savvy so they they switched their the public started to change their point of view and then we had the emergence of the field of research of um, exoplanets so and that's where you know they started discovering that um, because we had the Hubble telescope went out um, and then they're getting reports that um, that there were planets that were being found that, that were around a sun and they, it wasn't the only planet. And then now scientists say that if there's a sun and there's planets around it, it's highly likely that there's one of those planets will have some sort of life, even if they're still saying it's microbial life. They're, they're now admitting, yes, it's, it's, it's quite probable that there is life on, on that particular planet. And now they're looking for the Goldilocks planets like Earth, which are a certain distance from the sun, and if they've got water, um, there's a possibility they could be Earth-like. It's amazing that since I've been looking at it from a, a scientific point of view, and the conversation has gone from, well, maybe to we can see 10,000 um, planets that are um, Earth-like planets that are in the habitable zone, and then there's, you know, those statistical models that say it's more than it's more likely that there is life out there than there isn't. So. I think you raise a good point. Just in in the time that I've watched it, even it's evolved in its thinking. Yes, absolutely. And I'm hoping that at some stage in the future that um, science will uh, corroborate the stories of the early contactees, because Adamski himself was saying that there was life on Venus. Of course, scientists say, "Oh no, 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 life can't exist there." But that's life as we know it. You know, yeah. that life out there could be amazing, you know. It, it could even be possibly be able to be physical and non-physical. It could mm-hmm. have strange characteristics that we don't even think about. 
something I find interesting in, in the way you, you speak about UFOs and extraterrestrial life that is different to, to some of the stuff that I've read is almost the philosophical and um, humanistic point of view. Is that is that part of uh, what you find interesting and, and something that drives you forward to try to find out more? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, one of the main aim of UFO Research Queensland is to mm. understand the meaning of the UFO phenomenon. What does it mean that we're not alone in the universe? What does it mean for us as a, a species on Earth? Um, you know, do we exist in a cosmic neighbourhood and um, what? how will that change our perspective about the um, our place in the universe, what the universe could be like? Could it be more like Star Trek than what we actually think it is, you know? Yeah. Um, could it could it be like Babylon Five and there's um, extraterrestrial space stations out there with all types of different races that are visiting there and fueling up and you know laying over for yeah. the night? But the meaning is you know back to that is what does it mean for us as a human being on Earth that uh, extraterrestrial life is one interested in us enough to come to the planet and interact with some people on the planet? What does that mean? Yeah. I, I... I find it really interesting. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting about UFOs and extraterrestrial life, what it says about humanity and particularly in, in the way that um, looking out kind of reflects on what we see. And you see this through uh, movies and TV shows. When you look at the grand scheme of things, there are aliens out there. It kind of makes you think, what you know, what are we doing down here and how do we do it better? Yep. And that's that's what really drew me into the subject more deeply is what can we learn from those extraterrestrial races? Some of the contactees from the 50s and 60s were talking about the beings that they were interacting with um, and they would be coming from planets that, where there was no war and there was no disease and that perhaps they were more like uh, utopian type style of planets where sure. people would work for two days a week for example, and the rest of the time, which would and that work would be for the um, benefit of the collective, uh, and the rest of the time they would uh, pursue their artistic pursuits and refine the skills that they could then put, you know, put back into society sure. into useful useful ways. So um, I've I've always sort of thought of the UFO subject and and though. Um, you know, some of those earlier stories as um, holding up uh, like a handbook for dummies on planet Earth, you know, and how to how to be better. And yeah. uh, I've always seen the subject as a fantastic tool for personal growth if we start to look at Earth from an extraterrestrial perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a there's a theory that it's more likely that if a alien race was to be able to get into stellar travel, they would be more likely to be a loving utopian species than a warlike species for the simple fact of if you look at Earth, anytime there's a technological um, advancement, we work out how to turn it into a weapon. So the theory is that if you got to the point where you could go at, you know, at speeds that could take you across the universe, that technology would also be turned into a weapon if it was a warlike species and that would end their species, that you would never get past that, that point. If we've, we've had UFO visitors, if they were warlike, we would have known about it. All signs for me point to more peaceful than warlike. Yeah, well, you know, this is one of the 
controversial topics in the field of UFO research. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they are they uh, spiritually um, advanced or are they evil? That's that sort. Of, it's very, um, you know, there's there's a great discrepancy in for many people about it, um, and you know, it's really hard for me to get a clear perspective on that because. Um, I, I, I spent the, um, decade of the 90s answering the calls from the public. And, you know, there's, there's, was well over 3,000 easily, maybe three and a half of people calling up and telling me what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. And through the 90s, the world, UFO research field was inundated with alien abduction reports and they were not good and you know they were uh, people were um upset um angry uh fearful had post traumatic stress uh from their experiences now yeah. you could say that a few of those were hallucinating they were deluded they were and as some of some people, the skeptics like to say, they were influenced by all the uh, alien shows that were on TV during the 90s. I don't agree with that because abduction experiences were going on before that. Mm-hmm. But um, so one has to ask, what the hell was going on through that whole decade? And I mean, I spent 10 years with the phone glued to my head. Yeah. So um, we, you know, one year we topped out at 800 reports. I mean, we'd be lucky to get 100 today. So, and I'm talking about good reports. I'm talking about close-up, intricate details, uh, descriptions of craft and beings and what was happening to people when they were being taken on board craft and all those sorts of things. Don't get that these days. Was there um, a commonality? Yes. There were, well, people well, class the classic alien abduction experiences where people were taken often um you know from their homes um a lot of the time while they were uh, uh in bed either just going to sleep or um just waking up or but they would also be taken like while while they're in the cars um there was this one person had miss oh, actually I spoke to many people had missing time experiences while they were driving um and um and I can tell you about some of those but you know you know, people who there was someone who um, had missing time while they were at TAFE during the day. They went into the um, restrooms and didn't come out for like two hours. And where had they been? And they'd found that they had thrown up in that two-hour blank period of time. And what was that about? And there's so many, you know, cases of people with missing time with um, being taken away against their will, taken on board craft, having medical procedures or medical examinations done on them, um, you know, um, samples being collected from them of ova and sperm, um, also uh, scoop marks appearing on their bodies where sa- um, physical samples have been taken. Some people had uh, would end up with um, long scars which weren't there the day before. Um, so there's all that side of it. And, you know, I lived through that and sure. I was probably one of the handful of people in Australia at the time, which there, you know, there were only, there was only, um, you know, two or three groups in each state at that time and, um, one only in Western Australia that I'm aware of. 
and one in Tasmania. So there was just a handful of us taking those reports on a daily basis and there were so many of them, we just couldn't get them out to the public because, you know, as it was, I was already on the phone all day. (laughs) And you don't get paid for this work. It's all voluntary. So um, are they uh, aggressive? Are they peaceful? Are they loving? Are they spiritual? Um, I can't I can't say that. Um, I I think that and if anyone who's has followed Linda Moulton Howe's work with the um, animal mutilations, um, her documentary, which sort of put it, you know, stamped her on the UFO pay, uh, UFO field was called um, I think it was called Strange Harvest. So, um, you know, where animals were being um mutilated and and parts of their bodies were being taken and why was that going on what what's that about you know um so there's many aspects to the subject and yes there are positive and um uh, experiences that people have with what appear to be loving beings who come from advanced societies who are spiritually advanced technologically advanced but but they've got the wisdom to use it properly and um, there was one contactee in the early, early days, um, Daniel Fry, and he said that he was told by the ETs that there are three lots of sciences. There's, um, you know, there's uh, social science and spiritual science, our hard science, of course, technological science. And if we don't get the social and spiritual sciences right, the technology is just going to, you know, it's going to wipe us out. In in terms of your own experiences, have you um, had um close encounters or have you witnessed anything that you would um, attribute to ufos yes yes i've had six sightings um and uh, the last one was um probably about mm -mm, three years ago from my front deck and of the house and i had uh two friends staying here at the time and one of them had his video camera and um and they was we had been sitting on the front veranda having lunch and um and he said look at that and um, I sort of had a quick look I couldn't figure out what it was and then because he's a sky watcher so uh and they said meanwhile I'd gone inside to do something and uh and by the time I got down to the backyard they had already been watching it go over the west brisbane western suburbs uh in day daylight and it was just getting higher and higher and higher and almost like disappearing into outer space um and i don't know what that was it wasn't a plane um it it wasn't a satellite it was you know it was initially it was lower and then it just got higher and higher and just kept going up um and disappeared towards the sun so we couldn't see it against the sunlight but that was that was the last one so was this Um, during the day Yes, it was during the day. Wow. Yeah, middle of the Which day. Is it yeah. is rare, yeah. But the, probably the the best corroborated uh, sighting happened in 1992 when we had a sky watch, and uh, we were out at Wyvernhoe Dam, and um, there were 27 people out there, and um, we have when we have a sky watch where we camp overnight. Um, and Wyvernhoe Dam is 45 minutes west of Brisbane. So, um, and there's a big, there's a camping area there. And we have a roster that goes during the nights and there's with two or three people watching the sky for a two hour period so that the sky is monitored all night by someone. 
and they keep a record of what they see, even if it's a shooting star or a satellite. We just write everything down that we see in the sky. And um, it was three o'clock in the morning, and uh, one of them, there were three guys who were on uh, on the roster, and one of them came running into the camp and managed to wake eight of us up. And because um, and uh, I ran out to see uh, what they were seeing, and he had said that. They started watching – when they first started watching it, it appeared like a, an orange light in the sky way up. But when they looked at it through binoculars, it, there were three orange lights together, close together. And by the time I sort of ran up over the uh, like a slight hill and uh, the first thing I saw was looking down at the water in the dam and I saw the reflection of what was above it and, um, and I looked up and I saw these three orange objects which – were about 200, 200 or so, 200, 300 metres away over the water and um, they were football-shaped and they were silent, gliding slowly together and they were the colour of a, a, an, uh, an orange ember if you blow on an ember on the fire. Though. That's that bright sure. orangey colour. And um, they would have been, at that distance, they were probably about... Mm, a meter could have even been two meters. I don't know now. Um, in in length, uh, you know, the longer side of the football shape, and um, one of them just went out. One drifted off, and then it it just sort of disappeared in the distance. And the other one, um, we were camping on one side of an inlet, and which was sort of like made a half circle, and there was another um, uh, land piece on the other side. So. And it came, it went went over the trees opposite us, um, and came down in the trees. So some of the guys got in the car, they drove around there quickly uh, to see if they could see any signs of what it might have been if it was down on the ground. Um, they couldn't, they didn't see anything. So they came back, and then the next morning they went over there again. And you know, we're looking for all sorts of things. We're looking for hoax devices. We're looking for anything yeah. that could have given us some sign of what what it was. Nothing on the ground, nothing in the trees, nothing burnt, not, no leaves or bark burnt in the area. Absolutely nothing. It just disappeared. So I don't know what that was. Um, and But what was more interesting to me was the reactions of the people when they saw it. And um, I, so I sort of played the observer then and I was uh, – some of them said uh, – because what we had done the week before was some of us said, well, let's focus on sending out mental thoughts to uh, make contact, to have a, a spaceships come over and, and so we can see something, you know. So so um, some people said, oh, um, well, they must have tuned – they heard our message, it was them. Mm-hmm. Someone else said, oh, no, that was just hoax devices because I'm saying, well, where's the evidence of that, you know. Um, others were saying, uh, like, just just really stunned at what they'd seen. I was I was awestruck at what I saw because yeah. it was just like, wow, what's that? And it was so <laughs> close, you know. Actually, it was probably about 200 metres. But anyway, um, and, you know, people were in denial. There was a, a – a scientist there. There were all different types of people, business owners, um, you know, um, and just the different the different responses to to seeing something really unusual. 
And, you know, when you extrapolate that response out onto a planetary scale, I can understand why there's been a cover-up all along. I really can, because you don't know how people are going to respond at all. And we were there prepared to see something, right? We're, we're in the UFO field. We're prepared ourselves to see something. But when some of them saw it, they were sceptical. They were in denial. It was, no, that can't possibly be. But it was something really unusual. So speaking about um, cover-ups, the different, you know, the different reasons why there would be a cover-up, something that uh, has has really blown my mind um, is the 2017 Navy release. So I've got two questions. One is broadly around what you think about the Navy release, but more importantly, why didn't they just delete those videos? Well, I think because of the situation of how they first came out, and that was through Luis Elizondo, who was part of a, um, a task force, or, or this is the story that I've been, I've been reading. And, um, I mean, the whole thing was planned. Let's put it that way, because... The Washington Post and the New York Times picked up the story. It was released to them. I think it was released on the same day or a day between, and they both picked it up and it went out. And it was, and those newspapers, you know, they deal with, you know, pretty serious uh, articles, right? So, uh, and they can be life-changing articles too. So that was all planned. And I mean, if you really want to trace it back, I think it was all planned right from the beginning when um, Tom DeLonge got involved and from, um, and I think. Yeah, and I think he was actually selected, I think, to be the to be drawn into the whole um, episode and to be part of that because he had a following, yeah. and he could influence that following, and uh, so that when these articles came out in the newspaper about these um, the footage uh, mm-hmm. that the Navy pilots had taken. Uh, that it would have a little bit more impact. Mind you, it did, hardly got picked up at all in the Australian uh, media. Yeah. So that's really interesting in itself. Um, but, um, you know, Luis Elizondo, being part of that task force, I mean, he resigned, he left, but he made sure that they were released, but they weren't released ofi- officially before he left um, the task force. Mm-hmm. And so I think when once they came out and the series that was made, I can't remember the name of it now, but even though I watched the whole thing, uh, with um, Chris Mellon and Tom DeLonge and the others, um, oh, gosh, what was the name of that show? But it was a series that's available on, on um, YouTube or somewhere, and um, I think it came out on the History Channel. And um, where they were interviewing all these pilots because it sort of, gave them a foothold then to build on that story and they started interviewing um, other pilots and, uh, you know, other people, uh, naval personnel and et cetera, and, and what they'd seen and what they'd seen on radar sure. and all those sorts of things. So, And they were building on it. Um, the interesting thing for me, though, was that um, they've used the the fearful side, the fear factor, to try and get – um, those who should have been involved officially uh, to be able to respond. So they were saying these things are interfering with our pilots. They are flying too close. I think one of them came within 100 metres of a, of a, a jet uh, or 150 metres, uh, which is dangerous at those speeds. And so they're saying they're a threat. They're a threat. They're a threat. And they're trying to use that as a lever 
to get the authorities to have to deal with it. Mm. Um, and and I think that's where we're at. I don't know what's happened. I was following it all the way through, but I sort of, you know, when the pandemic came up and all that, it just sort of changed a few things and I stopped following that. And uh, But, you know, it, there's still pilots that are coming forward and I think there have been um, requests for for people in the military to be able to come forward officially and make those reports without having any repercussions since. It does lend um, a lot of credibility for something uh, being out there, uh, the origins of which obviously no one knows and that's why they're unidentified. Um, But that video definitely made me um, sit up and I remember seeing it and it was strange that it was released back in 2017 and then it kind of just fizzled away. And, um, you know, th- and I think there's a lot of reasons for that um, happening. The focus for me is is not around the North Americans. I think enough people have looked at that. What I really, um, in doing research for this episode, found absolutely amazing is just the um, how UFOs and the community in Australia and sightings in Australia. So, I guess, uh, first of all, what's the UFO community in Australia like? Well, that's an open-ended question, isn't it? <laughs> You're throwing me under the bus there. <laughs> well, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll phrase it. How much are you willing to share that won't get you in too much trouble? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think um, it's a voluntary uh, field for a start, mm. so no one's paid to do what they don't want to do, or sure. or or um, you know, um, help people they don't want to help. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, yeah. Um, in the past, we have had, um, like where I am in uh, Brisbane in Queensland, there were, um, goodness me, there were three groups in Brisbane, and there were was one on the Sunshine Coast, and one at Ipswich. So there were five in southeast Queensland at one time. Wow. Um, there's only us now. There's only just one left. Uh, and this is the oldest running UFO organization in Australia. It was actually only second oldest in the world. It was actually established in 1956. So just gives you an idea of the, sure. you know, the length of time that the, um, people have been collecting, you know, reports way before I came along. Um, so, um, you know, we've generally, there have been attempts to have a national body. And, uh, but because it's voluntary, you know, there are, there, you know, if you're paid to do something, you do what you have to do. Sure. Um, but in voluntary organizations, they have their own problems, put it that way. Yeah. So, um, but you know, the organizations have done great jobs. They have collected oodles of information that are sitting in filing cabinets throughout Australia that have never seen the light of day. Uh, some of those records have been passed on from um, researchers who have died in the past and mm. other people are holding them. We're holding our records plus the records of um, two organisations here. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, one organisation, which was the Australian Centre for UFO Studies, which is, no longer exists, and the other one was the, is the private records of uh, researcher Claire Noble, who was in far, in Queensland, who was responsible for recording the Tully Ness, which are very well known in Queensland, um, the Saucer Ness, and um, and many other landing sites, up to about a hundred or so in the Tully area in Queensland. So um, 
you know, there's um, they've done great work and they've done it at the at a cost because you give up your valuable family time to do this. And, um, you know, it's and I, I have to take my hat off to people who do it because it's um, it's not an easy field to to stay in. It's a lot of the time good researchers have walked away because they found it too hard um, gathering evidence and um, reports and getting frustrated that the public don't want to, you know, swallow it. And, uh, you know, all the, um, in the past, all the uh, knee-jerk reactions that they've had, doors slammed in their faces and called idiots and ridiculed, all that sort of stuff. You know, it's a lot. It is a lot for people to wear. I think that just highlights the um, the the vastness of uh, UFO experience in Australia and um, the amount of um, information that's there and kind of thinking about different experiences and and people have experienced it. Do you have a a, a recent um, case or a recent person that you've spoken to that's given you a sighting um, or an experience that you find really credible? There are. Um... There's so many. <laughs> um, I can't say there's a recent one because there has been a huge drop in sighting reports, particularly this year. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, for obvious reasons that people's attention are on other things, they're not outside watching the skies like they used to be. Do you think it's got to do with people are stuck inside and hoping not to catch um, the virus or is there something more? Well, I think that's part of it. But, I, you know, people also have close encounter experiences too. And I have to say that the reports have dropped in numbers in recent years, not just this year, but more, more so this year. Um, and the reports have changed. Like, um, And I would say probably around the early 2000s that the numbers started to drop off. And there'll be people who will who will um, say, no, that's not true. We're getting more reports than ever. Well, not in Australia. I'm sorry. Um, and you know, and this is from people who set up a UFO Facebook page and haven't in like in the last couple of years, and that's about it. They haven't been around for for a few decades to know what's been happening. I can't see the span. Yeah, can't. Yeah, the bigger picture of what's been going on and the evolution of the phenomenon. The phenomenon itself uh, changes. Yeah, has it changed? Yeah, um, well, if you want to go back to even the 50s and 60s, I mean, the types of reports that were happening then were uh, were coming forward, people were coming forward with reports of um, space brothers. They were called space brothers. They're people who were having um, positive, uplifting experiences of equal exchange um, with beings uh, who were, you know, um, just uh, – benefactors i suppose to humanity um and then in the um although there was the the betty and barney hill abduction case i think i yep. can't remember that occurred in 69 i think i can't quite remember now um late 60s yeah yeah and then uh and then there were some more abductions and some more abductions but when i came along in 88 um they weren't as well known or they were known in Australia, but there weren't as many reports until um, the early 90s started, probably 90, actually 1990, I suppose, that I was aware of in in the organisation. And we started to get these reports. So through the 90s, we had all these alien abduction type of experiences and these positive ones with space brother type beings almost didn't exist. 
And then after the 90s, in by the time we got into the 2000s, the numbers started to drop off. Actually, around 2000, there were what I call mixed motive cases where people were having both positive and negative experiences. And it was almost as one, I remember one of them described it as, I'd be having a negative experience, I could have an alien abduction experience, and then after it, I would have a positive contact experience, and it was like they had come to heal the damage that had been done to me by these um, abducting aliens. Sure. I thought, well, that that was an interesting concept. So there's this bag of mixed motive cases till about 2005, I think, and then the numbers just started to drop off. Um, and today you're getting people taking photos of um you know, Elon Musk uh, Starlink satellites and saying they're UFOs, <laughs> UFOs. So at the same time, um, as researchers who'd been in the field for a long time are starting to die off and they had worked very hard at being as scientific as they could to document cases as well as they could um, and to investigate them very well, um, and there were people who had those backgrounds, those scientific backgrounds, which we don't seem to have many of these days. Um, and today we've got people with, you know, smartphones who are going around taking photos and they'll send them into a say, what's this? And it's like a black screen with a white dot in the middle. We say, <laughs> I don't know, it's a black screen with a white dot in the middle. I don't know what that yeah. is, you know. It could be anything. So, um, yeah, it's like discernment has dropped off, um, knowledge, uh, like, Thinking about what people are seeing has dropped off, even though we've got all these apps to be able to identify what's in the sky, you know. People don't seem to be yeah. using them as much. I don't know why. Um, could, it, could it be a function of uh, space junk? Mm, yeah, oh, look, it could be that too. And and it's just the lack of knowledge, though. Like mm. uh, people have no idea what an iridium flare might look like. And um, there's an app that you can get, that apps that, that will, you know, show the flares. They'll tell you the time, the date, the direction. Um, and some of them will even give you a countdown and, and uh, with a direction finder on your smartphone of where it is. Because you have to be looking in the right place at the right time, but it will just flare up and then it will disappear. So – um, wow. and, and people think that's just so incredible, but guess what? It's an iridium flare. So, yeah. um, you know, there's a lack of knowledge and yeah. I think that there's a lack of people seeking that proper knowledge and trying to get things right. I don't think people are trying to be, a, they're not as discerning as they used to be. Mm. Sure. Um, yeah, that, that's really interesting that, um, that the sightings, how the sightings have related to the way that we um, interact with the world, I guess. So can yeah. you think of a, a, the most one of your most recent cases and what that looked like? So what does what does a sighting or what does an experience look like kind of in 2017, 18, 19, 20 in the last few years? Um, well, there was um, there was a case that we investigated um, a few years ago probably about four years, three or four years ago, and it involved a, a gentleman who was a musician and he was working in his studio and um, at night in his house and um, these, these blue lights were coming into his studio through the window and they were um, um, creating a sense of exhaustion in him as um 
and he was having to struggle to remain conscious and fight it off. And uh, that went on for some time while this blue light was coming into from the from up above from the sky mm-hmm. shining down on him. And um, and uh, the next day um, there were uh, circular markings on the ground outside on the concrete driveway and and on the grass, um, which I didn't see because he told us this um, later. But we spent a lot of time with him, a few hours with him, sitting and listening to other aspects. Other stories, I guess, other reports that um, he had, his was so interesting that I felt that we had to go and spend some time and do a face-to-face interview because we can't always do that because people are quite a distance away. But uh, he was um, he was staying uh, not too far south of Brisbane at the time, so we, we went and spent a couple of hours with him. But um, And I believed what he was saying because there were other telltale markers in his uh, other stories, but also over the years I've observed the types of people who uh, typically report close encounters and close UFO sightings, and mm-hmm. they are highly creative people, and they're often musicians um, or um, artists, um, performers, singers, you know, anything to do with creative expression like that. Or they have a an interest in the healing fields, and they may be in traditional healing fields, like be a psychologist or a psychiatrist, or they could even be an MD. Um, or um, they're interested in alternative healing, so they'll get into you know hands-on healing, like Reiki, or they'll um, become they'll do uh, become massage therapists or um, other things like that, you know. So. Um, and that's a really a real telltale sign of the types of people um, who who will report these experiences. And I find that really interesting. Also, they're spiritually engaged. They're um, they're practicing spiritual um, concepts or things that they've learned. They'll meditate. Um, they'll have a, a deeper connection to a higher power, whether they call it. Um, you know, they might call it God or they might call it the great spirit or, you know, or a guide in their life, a spiritual guide or something like that. They, they are, they're, they're quite, they can be quite alternative. And I find that fascinating that, um, you know, that if they're not like that or, or they've just got this other creative outlet, like there was one gentleman who actually had a gained time experience, not missing time. He gained half an hour while he was driving a delivery in his truck from oh, casino in or to casino in New South Wales from Lismore, I think it was. Um, and this green light followed his truck. It was pacing him side, um, beside him for quite a while and then it disappeared. And he got to his destination a half an hour earlier than what he should have, which was very strange, he thought. But as it turned out, he actually used to make ships in bottles and he had hundreds of them. So, um, you know, there's those sorts of things that when people are telling me their stories, I'm, I'm say, I say to them things like, so what, what are, have you had any other unusual experiences and what do you do in your spare time? You know, so I can find out those things. And the other unusual experiences they will often report is um, they've had a near-death experience. Or they've had an out, or they've had out of body experiences, but 
with in regard to the near-death experience, when I first went out into the field um, uh, with my buddy who was um, teaching me the ropes, um, I was, you know, we were talking to people and saying, have you had any um, strange experiences, thinking, you know, war, UFO, sightings, etc." Yeah. And this is in the late 80s. Uh, and surprisingly, um, half of them would say, well, I have had strange experiences, but it's not UFOs, but I had this experience where I died once and I had this, I, you know, I, I saw these dead people, or these, I met these people who had died before me, my family, relatives, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and um, at the time, I just put it on the shelf. I thought, oh, yeah, okay, um, because I am a skeptic at heart as well. And um, I think it's really important to have a healthy scepticism in this field. Yeah. But as the years have gone on, I've sort of gone, duh, why didn't I, that click with me earlier? Because now I'm finding people, um, this is quite common, that, and I'm not the only one finding it. There are researchers around the world who are finding the same thing as I am, that people who have close encounters or or have multiple sightings in their life, um, they're also having these other paranormal experiences paralleling their okay. lives or entwining their lives too. And um, and that is really, really curious and I don't understand it. Um, and I would l- hope I can understand it one day. Um, you know, I found myself, particularly when I was younger, looking out the, the window and seeing the light and, you know, my brain took over and, you know, I, I was lost in thought and, and that light became a UFO to me. Um mm. And I was in the car with my family, so, you know, it, it wasn't a UFO because they would have noticed. But to me, that light became bigger. It moved around. Mm. But, you know, I could feel that was my creative brain. Have you found a way to try to separate what would be, you know, imagined from what you think is, is real? Yeah, now that's a really good question. And I would have to say to you, well, what is real? You know, I think that we are reassessing reality all the time these days and a lot a lot faster than what we used to. I, I think that, um, you know, one of the fallacies, I think, is that um, creative people, are, while they are highly imaginative, they are prone to make things up. They may be prone, some people may be prone to misinterpret some things, but when you get people who live on the land, who are bushies, or as we say in uh, in Australia, who people who live in the country, and, and my father was a bushie, so I feel I can say this. Um, um, they and they see something that is out of this world, and they might describe something like um, the cows ran through the fence. They, there was a light over the paddock. It came down. The cattle ran through the fence. These cattle ran through barbed wire. I've never seen it, anything happen like that before. And But when you delve into their stories, you find that um, they can be creative people in themselves. And yet I know people on the land are much more grounded than anyone I know. Yeah. Um, and they're not prone to make stuff up like that, although they might make up a good yarn. You know it's a yarn. You know, yeah, when they yeah. – when they tell you that they saw something that spooked the cattle and the cattle ran through the fence, you can take it to the bank. They're not going to make that that stuff up. Uh, and I've spoken to a lot of people like that. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, I, and I say, you know, what do you do in your spare time? Well, I might, um, I'll, you know, I might make samurai swords 
or um, I sculpt or, you know, what do you do to relieve the stress of your job? Um, you know, I, uh, I'm i an opera singer. I mean, I, you know, community, community, mm. uh, you know, or um, I, I play guitar or that sort of thing, you know. So sure. that's the sort of thing that I'm sort of listening for. Um, you know, I have a tick list and I go through that mentally and I listen. My ears prick up when they say things and – um, and I, I, for me, over time, it's proven true, I think, that um, they fit a pattern. Let's put it that way. Maybe that's the best way to say it, that people fit a pattern. Now, what that pattern means, I don't know, but that's what I'd like to find out. It's interesting that you can make these connections between sightings and um, which, which, you know, a, a skeptic might say, says, well, that, you know, that might be the personality type that is more likely to to have something have one of these visions or, or sightings um but it also could be um if i was a if i was a um if i was looking for a type of person to visit and um uh, you know understand better that might be the type of person they're looking for maybe that's mm. what they're they're on the search for mm. well you know i i the reason i they sort of just i started to delve into that more deeply is because you know we'd been relying on people to come forward and tell us their story and um what they'd seen what they'd experienced etc um and i started to think how can we find them absolutely and so i started to look more deeply in the types of people that were reporting these things and that was when i started to realize if you wanted to find people who had who had close encounters Go look in the performing arts community. Go look in the artist community. Go look in the musical industry, you know, and God knows how many musicians do we know who've, um, who are well-known, like John Lennon who said he'd seen a UFO and had contact with an alien. And um, there are lots of people like that once you start digging around. And um, and so that's why I said, you know, when people say, well, how, how do these how do you know who's who's done this? And they well, this is where you go look for them. You know, don't look for them in in left brain areas. Look at the right brain sort of people, and maybe that's why those people are contacted rather than mm. more left brain people. I don't know. Sure. Thinking about the actual um, creatures or, or beings that are that are travelling, um, you know, the humans that go into space for six months, they lose muscle, they lose bone mass. Uh, how do you think that these creatures are able to travel what I assume to be vast distances um, and not deteriorate? Um, you know, let me tell you a brief story. Some years ago when um, Foxtel first came on the scene, I was away on holidays um, up at the Sunshine Coast and watching a program called um, – I can't remember what it's called now, but on that program it was – People were um, exploring how space travel, long-term space travel, might affect the human body. And guess what? They said if someone is in a human is in space for a very long time, this is how we predict they will look. And guess what they look like? They look like um, these typical grey, what people call grey aliens, with the inverted pear-shaped heads. Their bodies were elongated. They looked very slim with no muscles that could be seen. Um, and there was, and I, I just about fell over. <laughs> I couldn't believe it that they were saying we'll turn into what we're, people are reporting that they're seeing aliens look like this. Um, 
that's one part of that answer. <laughs> well, um, Ed, do, do you think that points to a species that lives on ship and not doesn't travel from a world but is travelling, is constantly travelling? Well, that's a possibility. But also, um, you know, a, a, a being that is very slim like that, it probably lives in a hot environment because yeah. that, that way the heat can escape from the body fairly quickly. Um, we see that know, on Earth. Yeah, exactly. People and at the Arctic tend to be short. People at the, you know, people at hotter places tend to be tall and lanky. Elongated, yeah. And yeah. um, and maybe a dark environment because they have these big eyes, you know. So yeah. um, you've got to look at the biology, the environment, and how that uh, shapes their biology too. Um, it could be that. Um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not really sure actually. Um, that's that's not my field of expertise. Maybe you should speak to a biologist. <laughs> I think something that that probably does fall into your expertise. What do you what kind of personality do you think these creatures have to be able to travel, to be able to interact with uh, vastly different species? Well, I can only go on what people are reporting to me, mm-hmm. and they they've been reporting a few different types. Um, these little grey aliens that they report seem to have be emotionless, um, which makes me wonder: Are they, um, you know, like a, a, a cybernetic sort of um, being? Um, yeah. Uh, there's that, and then easier you've got to a, travel if you're a robot. Yeah, yeah, sort of. But but you know, having re- like um, being covered in something that is akin to real skin and things like mm. that. Um, but who created them in the first place? That's the other thing. Um, so some people have reported ETs being looking very Nordic looking, you know, uh, attractive, blonde, uh, fair, um, and and quite um, more positively uh, aligned with uh, humans. And, and various forms in between those, you know, they talk about reptilian type of beings, which sort of have reptilian, they're scaly skins. Um, sure. And uh, they t- seem to be a bit more aggressive. Um, so there's different personality types um, which could indicate different races working mm-hmm. together or not, uh, could indicate different types of um Artificial intelligence, which is involved on its own. Um, I mean, gosh, that's, that's such a big question. I don't even know if I can answer it properly, you know. Um, you know, with varying personalities, varying. My next question for you is a, is a bit more of a fun question um, and less, uh, less philosophical. What UFO-related movie slash TV show or multiple, if you have them, do you love and would recommend for others to watch? Hmm. Wow. There's been so many that I have watched. I think Star Trek. I I love the Star Trek series. I'm a real Trekkie. Um, but don't hold that against me, folks. Um, <laughs> because I actually am quite sensible <laughs> and grounded. Um, but you know what? Through the Star Trek series, I it gives you the opportunity to look at how humans might interact once we actually get off the planet. Um, with other species and how we're going to make mistakes, um, how we're going to repeat some behaviours that we do on planet Earth, like we're going to form alliances with extraterrestrial civilizations um, that is, you know, benefits us, benefits them, 
uh, how we might trade with them, um, what we might trade with them, and um, uh, and 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 how life in the universe actually coexists. You know, and 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 there may still be wars out there, and there may still be problems, and we may take our problems from Earth out into space. And you know, we're human beings; we're not perfect. We're just we're always growing and evolving. So Star Trek for me is is number one. I'd have to say all of the series, all of them. Yeah. I guess I particularly liked um, was it Enterprise? Was the prequel where they were just left? It was like like a hundred years from now where they just left yeah. Earth yeah. and they were going out and they were making all the all the mistakes. I really enjoyed that one because <laughs> it sort of you know it makes you feel a little bit more humble, um, <laughs> but also shocked at um, the possibilities of what you might find out there. Absolutely. Um, and um, I have to say it, the X-Files, of course. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the original series, which fo- the, the parts of the series which focused on the extraterrestrial side of it, not so much the paranormal side, although paranormal does intertw- intertwine the UFO subject. Um, but, yeah, I think yeah. they were pretty much spot on because I used to think someone's done their homework. They've been out there looking at um, – you know, they've been they've been reading up on the UFO subject that, and what people report, and, and they're pretty spot on. Two very good uh, recommendations, and I'm I'm sure people listening to this have probably either of those or both. Um, and um, there's plenty of recommendations that that I'm hoping come out of this because you know, it's always on a on a nice uh, Saturday afternoon. It's always nice to sit in front of the TV. I think. Well, <laughs> and be transported well, to another world. Yeah. I would also add to that Steven Spielberg's Taken series. I think that's excellent. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. My last question is, is there a question that you that you would like to get in interviews that you don't get? Ooh, uh, yes, probably. Um, where do we go with the UFO subject from here? We know that, well, I know that it's real from the reports yeah. I've received. Um, what next? Thank you for joining me on our last UFO interview for this series. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Cheryl as well as Roger and Jamie. Cheryl's compassion and kindness was inspirational. She is an example of how people with different beliefs can get along. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I really enjoyed and got a lot out of this conversation. I'm sure the listeners did too. To catch all the future episodes, subscribe in your favorite podcasting app. Leave a rating for the show to grow our obsessive community. Follow the socials and join your fellow obsessives. Links in the show notes. Written, produced and edited by Byron Gatt for Pinchicus Media. Sound designed by Lillian Fred. They designed the barking. I edited it out. Check out the full credits in the show notes and how to get in touch. Theme music from mixkit.co.